What terrifies us? What is it that elevates mere fear or nervousness to that all-consuming, paralysing emotion of terror? The world of the late 1700s wasn't short of terrible things, chief among them the bloody decapitations on the streets of revolutionary Paris under the blade of Madame Guillotine. Edmund Burke had watched as the terrors of the French Revolution unfolded, safe on the English side of the Channel, and coined the term terrorist to describe those that used terror to advance political aims. But as a philosopher, Edmund Burke also sought to understand what we actually mean when we talk of terror and beauty. To him, these concepts had their roots in the extremes of human thought, a state of maximum emotional feeling that he called the sublime. In this essay, first published some years before the terror of the guillotine, but then updated, he attempts to explain the idea of the sublime and the effect that it has on us. A Philosophical Inquiry into the Origin of the Sublime and Beautiful by Edmund Burke Of the Sublime Whatever is fitted in any sort to excite the ideas of pain and danger, that is to say, whatever is in any sort terrible, or is conversant about terrible objects, or operates in a manner similar to terror, is a source of the sublime. That is, it is productive of the strongest emotion which the mind is capable of feeling. I say the strongest emotion because I am satisfied the ideas of pain are much more powerful than those which enter on the part of pleasure. Without all doubt, the torments which we may be made to suffer are much greater in their effect on the body and mind than any pleasures which the most learned voluptuary could suggest, or than the liveliest imagination and the most sound and exquisitely sensible body could enjoy. Nay, I am in great doubt whether any man could be found who would earn a life of the most perfect satisfaction at the price of ending it in the torments which justice inflicted in the few hours on the late unfortunate regicide in France. But as pain is stronger in its operation than pleasure, so death is in general a much more affecting idea than pain, because there are very few pains, however exquisite, which are not preferred to death. Nay, what generally makes pain itself, if I may say so, more painful, is that it is considered as an emissary of this king of terrors. When danger or pain press too nearly, they are incapable of giving any delight, and are simply terrible. But at certain distances, and with certain modifications, they may be, and they are, delightful, as we every day experience. The cause of this I shall endeavour to investigate below. Section 1. Of the Passion Caused by the Sublime The passion caused by the great and sublime in nature, when those causes operate most powerfully, is astonishment. An astonishment is that state of the soul in which all its motions are suspended, with some degree of horror. In this case, the mind is so entirely filled with its object that it cannot entertain any other, nor by consequence reason on that object which employs it. 
Hence arises the great power of the sublime, that, far from being produced by them, it anticipates our reasonings, and hurries us on by an irresistible force. Astonishment, as I have said, is the effect of the sublime in its highest degree. Terror No passion so effectually robs the mind of all its powers of acting and reasoning as fear. For fear being an apprehension of pain or death, it operates in a manner that resembles actual pain. Whatever, therefore, is terrible with regard to sight is sublime too, whether this cause of terror be imbued with greatness of dimensions or not, for it is impossible to look on anything as trifling if it is dangerous. There are many animals who, though far from being large, are yet capable of raising ideas at the sublime because they are considered as objects of terror. As serpents and poisonous animals of almost all kinds, uh, and to things of greater dimensions if we annex an advantageous idea of terror, they become without comparison. A level plain of a vast extent of land is certainly no mean idea. The prospect of such a plain may be as extensive as a prospect of the ocean, but can it ever fill the mind with anything so great as the ocean itself? This is owing to several causes, but it is owing to none more than this, that the ocean is an object of great terror. Indeed, terror is in all cases whatsoever, either more openly or latently, the ruling principle of the sublime. Several languages bear a strong testimony to the affinity of these two ideas. They frequently use the same word to signify indifferently the modes of astonishment or admiration and those modes of terror. The Romans use the verb stupio, a term which strongly marks the state of an astonished mind, to express the effect either of simple fear or of astonishment. The word atonitis, thunderstruck, is equally expressive of the alliance of these ideas. Indeed, the English astonishment and amazement point out as clearly the kindred emotions which attend to fear and wonder. They who have a more general knowledge of languages could produce, I make no doubt, many other equally striking examples. Obscurity To make anything very terrible, obscurity seems in general to be necessary. When we know the full extent of any danger, when we can accustom our eyes to it, a great deal of the apprehension vanishes. Everyone will be sensible of this, who considers how greatly night adds to our dread in all cases of danger, and how much the notions of ghosts and goblins, of which none can form clear ideas, affect minds which give credit to the popular tales concerning such sorts of beings. Those despotic governments, which are founded on the passions of men and principally upon the passion of fear, keep their chief as much as may be hidden from the public eye. The policy has been the same in many cases of religion. Almost all the heathen temples were dark. Even in those barbarous temples of the Native Americans at this day, they keep their idols in a dark part of the hut which is consecrated to his worship. For this purpose, too, the ancient druids performed all their ceremonies in the bosom of the darkest woods and in the shade of the oldest and most spreading oaks. Power 
Besides those things which directly suggest the idea of danger, and those which produce a similar effect from a mechanical cause, I know of nothing sublime which is not some modification of power. And this branch arises, as naturally, from terror, the common stock of everything that is sublime. The idea of power, at first view, seems at the class of these indifferent ones, which may equally belong to pain or to pleasure. But in reality, the affection arising from the idea of vast power is extremely remote from that neutral character. For first, we must remember that the idea of pain, in its highest degree, is much stronger than the highest degree of pleasure, and that it preserves the same superiority through all the subordinate gradations. From hence it is that, were there any chance of equal degrees of suffering or enjoyment, the idea of suffering must always be prevalent. And indeed, the ideas of pain, and above all of death, are so very affecting that whilst we remain in the presence of whatever is supposed to have the power of inflicting either, it is impossible to be perfectly free from terror. Again, we know by experience that, for the enjoyment of pleasure, no great efforts of power are at all necessary. Nay, we know that such efforts would go a great way towards destroying our satisfaction, for pleasure must be stolen and not forced upon us. Pleasure follows the will, and therefore we are generally affected with it by many things of a force greatly inferior to our own. But pain is always inflicted by a power in some way superior to us, because we would never submit to pain willingly. So that strength, violence, pain and terror are ideas that rush in upon the mind together. Look at a man or any other animal of prodigious strength, and what is your idea before reflection? Is it that this strength will be subservient to you, to your ease, to your pleasure, to your interest in any sense? No, no, the emotion you feel is, lest this enormous strength should be employed to the purposes of destruction, that power derives all its sublimity from the terror with which it is generally accompanied. And it will evidently, from its effect in the very few cases in which it may be possible to strip out a considerable degree of strength of its ability to hurt. When you do this, you spoil it of everything sublime, and it immediately becomes contemptible. Some great power must always be precedent to our dread of it. But this dread must necessarily follow the idea of such a power when it is once excited in the mind. It is on this principle that true religion has, and must have, so large a mixture of salutary fear, and that false religions have generally nothing else but fear to support them. Before the Christian religion had, as it were, humanised the idea of the divinity through Jesus Christ, and brought it somewhat nearer to us, there was very little said of the love of God. The followers of Plato have something of it, and only a little something— the other writers of pagan antiquity, whether poets or philosophers, nothing at all. And they who consider with what infinite attention, by what a disregard of every perishable object, through what long habits of piety and contemplation it is that any man is able to attain an entire love and devotion to the deity, will easily perceive that it is not the first, the most natural and the most striking effect which proceeds from that idea. Thus, we have traced power through its several gradations, 
unto the highest of all, where our imagination is finally lost and we find terror quite throughout the progress, its inseparable companion, and growing along with it as far as we can possibly trace them. Now, as power is undoubtedly a capital source of the sublime, this will point out evidently from whence its energy is derived, and to what class of ideas we ought to unite it. Vastness Greatness of dimension is a powerful cause of the sublime. This is too evident, and the observation too common to need any real illustration. It is not so common to consider in what ways greatness of dimension, vastness of extent or size or quantity, actually has the most striking effect. For, certainly, there are ways and modes wherein the same quantity of extension shall produce greater effects than is to be found in others. Extension is either in length, height, or depth. Of these, length strikes the least. A hundred yards of even ground will never work such an effect as a tower that was a hundred yards high, or a rock or mountain of that altitude. I am apt to imagine, likewise, that height is less grand than depth, and that we are more struck at looking down from a precipice than looking up at an object of equal height, but of that I am not totally positive. A perpendicular has more force in forming the sublime than an inclined plane, and the effects of a rugged and broken surface seem stronger than where it is smooth and polished. It would carry us out of our way to enter in this place into the causes of these appearances, but certain it is they afford a large and fruitful field of speculation. However, it may not be amiss to add to these remarks upon magnitude that, as the great extreme of dimension is sublime, so the last extreme of littleness is in some measure sublime likewise. When we attend to the infinite divisibility of matter, when we pursue animal life into those excessively small and yet organised beings, that escape the nicest inquisition of the sense, when we push our discoveries yet downward and consider those creatures so many degrees yet smaller and the still diminishing scale of existence in tracing which the imagination is lost as well as the sense, we become amazed and confounded at the wonders of minuteness. Nor can we distinguish in its effect the extreme of littleness from the vastness itself. For division must be infinite as well as addition, because the idea of a perfect unity could no more be arrived at than that of a complete whole to which nothing could be added. Magnitude in building To the sublime in buildings, greatness of dimension seems requisite, for on a few parts and those small, the imagination cannot rise to any idea of infinity. No greatness in the manner can effectually compensate for the want of proper dimensions. There is no danger of drawing men into extravagant designs by this rule. It carries its own caution along with it. Because too great a length in buildings destroys the purpose of greatness which it was intended to promote, the perspective will lessen it in height as it gains in length, and will bring it at last to a point, turning the whole figure into a sort of triangle stretching away, the poorest in its effect of almost any figure that can be presented to the eye. 
I have observed that colonnades and avenues of trees of a moderate length were, without comparison, far grander than when they were suffered to run to immense distances. A true artist should put a generous deceit on the spectators and affect the noblest designs by the easiest methods. Designs that are vast only by their dimensions are always the sign of a common and low imagination. No work of art can be great but as it deceives. To be otherwise is the prerogative of nature only. A good eye will fix the medium betwixt an excessive length or height, for the same objection lies against both, and a short or broken quantity. And perhaps it might be ascertained to a tolerable degree of exactness if it was my purpose to descend far into the particulars of any art. Light Having considered then extension, so far as it is capable of raising ideas of greatness, colour comes next under consideration. All colours depend on light. Light, therefore, ought previously to be examined, and with its opposite, darkness. With regard to light, to make it a cause capable of producing the sublime, it must be attended with some circumstances, besides its bare faculty of showing other objects. Mere light is too common a thing to make a strong impression on the mind, and without a strong impression nothing can be sublime. But such a light as that of the sun, immediately exerted on the eye as it overpowers the sense, is a very great idea. Light of an inferior strength to this, if it moves with great clarity, has the same power, for lightning is certainly productive of grandeur, which it owes chiefly to the extreme velocity of its motion. A quick transition from light to darkness, or from darkness to light, has yet a greater effect. But darkness is more productive of sublime ideas than light. Extreme light, by overcoming the organs of sight, obliterates all objects, so as in its effect exactly to resemble darkness. After looking some time at the sun, two black spots, the impressions which the sun leaves, seem to dance before our eyes. Thus are two ideas as opposite as can be imagined reconciled in the extremes of both, and both, in spite of their opposite nature, brought concur in producing the sublime. And this is not the only instance wherein the opposite of extremes operate equally in favour of the sublime, which in all things abhors mediocrity. Light in building. As the management of light is a matter of importance in architecture, it is worth inquiring how far this remark is applicable to buildings. I think, then, that all edifices calculated to produce an idea of the sublime ought rather to be dark and gloomy, and this for two reasons. The first is that darkness itself, on other occasions, is known by experience to have a greater effect on the passions than light. The second is that to make any object very striking, we should make it as different as possible from the objects with which we have been immediately familiar. When, therefore, you enter a building, you cannot pass into a greater light than you had in the open air. To go into one some few degrees less luminous can make only a trifling change. But to make the transition thoroughly striking, you ought to pass from the greatest light to as much darkness as is consistent with the uses of the architecture. 
At night, the contrary rule will follow, but for the very same reason. And the more highly a room is then illuminated, the grander the passion will be. Sound and loudness. The eye is not the only organ of sensation by which sublime passion may be produced. Sounds have a great power in these, as in most other passions. I do not mean words, because words do not affect simply by their sounds, but by means altogether different. Excessive loudness alone is sufficient to overpower the soul, to suspend its actions, and to fill it with terror. The noise of vast cataracts, raging storms, thunder, artillery, awakes a great and awful sensation in the mind, though we can observe no nicety or artifice in those sorts of music. The shouting of multitudes has a similar effect, and by the sole strength of the sound so amazes and confounds the imagination that, in this staggering and the hurry of the mind, the best established tempers can scarcely forbear being borne down and joining in the common cry and common resolution of the crowd. Suddenness A sudden beginning, or sudden cessation of sound of any considerable force, has the same power. The attention is roused by this, and the faculties driven forward, as it were, on their guard. Whatever, either in sights or sounds, makes the transition from one extreme to the other causes no terror, and consequently can be no cause of greatness. In everything sudden and unexpected, we are apt to start. That is, we have a perception of danger, and our nature rouses us to guard against it may be observed that a single sound of some strength, though but of short duration, if repeated after intervals, has a grand effect. Few things are more awful than the striking of a great clock, when the silence of the night prevents the attention from being too much dissipated. The same may be said of a single stroke on a drum, repeated with pauses, and of the successive firing of a cannon at a distance. All the effects mentioned in this section have causes very nearly alike. Finally, feeling. Of feeling, little more can be said than that the idea of bodily pain, in all the modes and degrees of labour, pain, anguish, torment, is productive of the sublime, and nothing else in this sense can produce it. I need not give here any fresh instances as those given in the former sections abundantly illustrate a remark that, in reality, wants only an attention to nature to be made by everybody. <laughs>